0: Welcome to episode 138 with my guest, Johnny O. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, sexual confusion, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. That doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mental Pod is also the Twitter name you can follow me at. Please go check out the website. You can join the forum. You can uh, take a survey. You can see how other people filled out surveys. Um, you can support the show. Uh, and I'm sure there's other. You can buy a T-shirt. You can buy a coffee mug. Uh, and you can shop through our Amazon search portal. Um what did I want to share? Oh, we have a winner for the uh, monthly donor slash transcriber uh, cutting board raffle. Kelly Price won. Uh, the number that uh, I had picked was 105, and she came closest with the number 99. So uh, thank you, Kelly, for being a monthly donor. I'll be sending that out to her. Um, the other thing I, – oh, I wanted to share this with you guys. Those of you that are, are uh, regular listeners um, – Actually, I'm going to back up even one step further and uh, welcome our new listeners from that may have found us through iTunes. Uh, iTunes was nice enough to put us on the the homepage uh, this last week, and I know we've been getting a lot of new downloads. So. Um, I'd encourage those of you that want that are new to the podcast and want to know what episodes to listen to. Uh, if you go to the website and do a search on listener favorites, uh, there are two lists of the top 10 episodes as voted by the listeners from 2011 and 2012. And that'd be a good place to start. Um, I had an interesting week this, this last week, overall I've been feeling really good. I'm in the wood shop, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, as you know, your regular listeners know, I have a very complicated uh, relationship with my mom. Cut contact with her about a year and a half ago. Um, some thoughts and feelings and memories surfaced that I had pushed down for a long time and has just felt false to be around her. And um, and I've really enjoyed the, the, the time away, and she's been sending me letters. Um, I stopped responding about six months ago. Um because even the letters were starting to make me sad and bum me out and it felt like there was manipulation and throwing other people under the bus and and um and she sent me something um recently um which was a a clipping from a, a reading and in a nutshell I won't read you the whole thing, but in a nutshell it basically said you you your depression and all your issues come from your dad being an alcoholic that's what made you shut down but you're shutting other people out and i'm one of them and you it's all in your head i haven't done anything wrong and uh and it just it just i i just felt like somebody punched me in the stomach you know and um but i was like You know, I got to a place a while ago, you know, maybe a year ago, where I I just was like, this person is never going to change. She has her own issues. um, And I just need to accept her for how she is, whether I have contact with her or or not. Um, And but it just it's like I feel like every I feel like I'm dealing with an octopus. And every time I pin one arm down, seven more are coming at me. And, um, and it pissed me off and made me sad that she's saying this is all in, in my head. Um, and so as you, as you regular listeners know, uh, the way that I play ice hockey is a barometer of how I'm feeling spiritually. And, um, so I went to play a game the other night. And it's so funny because I said to my wife, uh, we were, we were going to dinner beforehand and, uh. And I said, "Oh, it's a it's a full moon. You know, some somebody's going to lose their shit tonight." And um, having no idea, I would be the one that lost my shit that night. And so I'm I'm playing uh, in this game, and it's really close, and we're up by one goal, and there's like two minutes left, and the puck comes into our end, and this guy and I are battling for it, and he grabs my arm and he pulls it around his waist. And falls down. In, in other words, he makes it look like I've taken him down. And sure enough, I get a penalty for it. And and I was just—I saw red. You know, I was just like. So I sit in the penalty box, and I can't wait to get out to confront him about just what a cheap fuck he is for doing that. And so I skate up to him, and I was like, "Man, that was really cheap." And he starts talking shit, like, "Yeah, well, you know, maybe you should stop the two goals I scored on you." And and I just. Lost my shit. I'm challenging him to a fight. I'm calling him a, you know, a, a cunt. And I like, too, how when people tap into my mom's shit, how I always call him a cunt, but I never even realized until literally an hour ago that, that that's why. I, I don't call people cunts any other time. Um, but it, I wouldn't let it go. Uh, we got off the ice. I, I, I like, ran to catch up with him, calling him a cunt. Like, and then uh, accosted him In and didn't punch him, but I uh, took my helmet and my gloves off in front of his locker room. And everybody around me is going, Paul, let it go. Let it go. His teammates are going, dude, what, what's your problem? I, I just, I was so fucking angry. And after I showered and got dressed, the rage had gone away and I and I went over and I poked my head in their locker room and I said, Hey, I just want to apologize, you know, for losing my shit. Um I was just really wound up and the guy shook my hand and, you know, the his teammates were all everybody was very nice. And one of the things that I've learned in the last ten years is when I do something really stupid or childish is to find some place quiet to go to afterwards and go, what what was it that triggered this? And and I, it almost always has to do with something to do with my mom or something to do with my dad. And I got kind of quiet, and I and I looked at it, and I was like, you know what I think really bothered me was that I was being blamed for something that I didn't do. And that letter that I'd gotten from my mom was basically her saying, this is all your issue. You know, I've done nothing wrong. And I think it, it, it tapped into that. And... um I'd like to think that I've processed all of this shit and I'm and I'm moving on, but I clearly, clearly haven't. And um, I think it helps to it helps to talk about it because um, I can't figure it out when it's just bouncing around back and forth in my in my brain. But I'm 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 having a great week. I interviewed some some great guests, and um, I'm I really like this interview that I uh, I did with Johnny O, which I'm going to air in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, You know, I was thinking who would be like a great guest to get, but I don't, I don't know how I would go about it, but I would love to interview a serial killer, not, not an, not an active serial killer. That would be, uh, that wouldn't be too much fun. As you were, as as you were pushing me into the van, what were you feeling in your body when you saw me wet myself?
1: Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head.
0: Oh, God, that's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have
1: not been special.
0: My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible.
1: A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career.
0: Wanting to die and...
1: To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... With the guys.
0: I'm here with my friend Johnny O, who I've known for probably 10 years. When I first got sober, you were one of the guys in
1: the support group that I sadly looked up to. Uh, and I'm, hopefully, I haven't disappointed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've always enjoyed the honesty and the the, the humor that you bring. Um, and I, I remember. A moment, I think I was about six months sober, and you and Gary were um, across the room, and you guys were sharing some kind of inside joke, and you were laughing, and I remember being jealous, because I didn't have those kind of friendships yet. I right. would, eventually, but that was a big attraction um, yeah. for me, and uh, I've never said that to you, and I just wanted to thank you for yeah. being that. somebody that... Um, that that made it feel like home and something that could be fun,
1: right? For me, you were actually the inside joke. But that's, <laughs> yeah, since we're since we're getting rigorously honest, uh, <laughs> see the size of Paul's ass. <laughs> do you do you <laughs> like to be referred to as
0: former crackhead?
1: Um. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you introduce yourself? Oh, retired carpet inspector. <laughs> retired carpet yeah,
0: I, inspector. I had quite
1: a few. Quite a few. Uh, for those window of you that- blind repair. <laughs> Johnny, you've been over there for four hours. What's no that the there's something going on over here. Just the SWAT team's moving
0: in <laughs> for
1: people that uh, that aren't.
0: Uh, Familiar with the latter stages of uh, Stimulants. Amf- the stimulant stimulant uh, psychosis. It, it's uh, uh. peering out the blinds, peering out the peephole, uh, convinced the SWAT I, team is coming in.
1: Can I tell a, a brief? So, so I, okay, so that's I'm, why, I'm con- that's why you're on. Okay, <laughs> so I'm convinced that uh, if uh, if I'm at a. Uh, this uh, recovery kind of house uh, you know and, and I'm, I'm out towards Pasadena I'm living in this place and uh, and I'm convinced that if I can climb if I can drive to the top of Mount Wilson which is uh, here in Los Angeles and it's you know it's where they they've got a camera for the news and they like, oh let's go to the Mount Wilson cam you know and it's always looking at all the smog and, and so forth coming into the Los Angeles basin and I was like a lot of antennas up there, so it's a real high point, and I was thinking, if I could get up there and and get my groove on, then it would be okay, you know, and I, I'll never forget. Um, and you were,
0: even though you were living in a sober living, you weren't sober at that
1: point? No, no. I, I mean, that's, I mean, just because it says it in the name, I mean, just don't, <laughs> it's don't suggestion. let it, it's, yeah, I mean, come on, let's. No, I had uh, actually I had relapsed and I was I had, was coming in and out, and, but they, it was actually a good sober. They kicked me out quickly uh, the the first night that I didn't show up, um, which took a little while, but um, and it was a really nice place too in Pasadena. Um, and so I, I drove to the top of Mount Wilson, and um, I, I I parked the car and then I walked down this really steep. Uh, hill and I was I knew that there was nobody anywhere near me and um I took a blast and I will I vividly I mean I would pass a polygraph that as soon as I took this blast I could hear dogs barking not regular like, not like friendly like the like you know canine you know you mm-hmm. know police canine you know looking for somebody I heard shotguns the. Ch-ch- of the shotguns and I heard radios and I'm pretty sure there was a helicopter um, coming too at the time. Of course, this was all imaginary at the time, but it was so real and so scary. And that was at the point where I realized that I could probably be orbiting the earth solo and not be able to get away with it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Spy satellites. Uh, was that a moment of clarity for you,
1: or was that just another in a series of it was just another in a series. I mean, it was just more, you know of of just like, wow, if the experiments that didn't work and whoa. We'll, we'll... You know, I was convinced, you know, of course, I've got all the right answers to everything. I mean, you should come and ask me because I was happy to, you know, spread my wisdom with anybody that (laughs) cared to ask. So I knew the answers to everything. And I was convinced that if I could just get up there and there was and I knew there was nobody around that everything, you know, everything would be fine. You'd be
0: able to use like a gentleman.
1: Absolutely. You know, and it just I, you know. You um, were a gentleman crackhead, absolutely uh yep. towards
0: the end, you were smoking in a top hat
1: and tails exactly, yeah, that was all though <laughs> <laughs> that was.
0: let's let's talk about uh what your childhood is is like.
1: Um, or is like you're still is a like, child. I know at the tender age of forty six. No, I left. Uh, and you've been sober for how long now? Uh, Sixteen. January first, ninety seven. So coming up on seventeen. It's end October. So i um, awesome. coming up on seventeen, and uh, I take no credit for it. I take credit for getting out of the way and allowing, you know, the support group and. Uh, God of my own understanding to kind of step in and, you know, take the wheel. So, um, growing up, I was, uh, youngest of six kids, um, which we call that Vatican roulette. And, uh, I, I was born in New York out in Garden City out on Long Island. And, uh, I was there till I was about five. And then we moved to, uh, North Jersey to a town called Mawa, which is about, it's about 20, 25 miles Northwest of Manhattan. You know, pretty suburby kind of a deal. And um um and my my dad drank a lot, you know, and I don't I don't think uh he was an alcoholic, you know, and
0: just a heavy drinker.
1: You know, and some of the literature that that we've got, um, you know, it talks about a type of hard drinker who might die a few years before his time, but given a good enough reason he can stop or moderate. And, um, uh, you know, my dad never, never missed a day of work, you know? I mean, he, he made a good living. He worked as, as a lawyer and, um, uh, so rager, you know, um, uh, both my parents are still alive. They're both, uh, my mom's 88, my dad's 87 and they both live in the same house where I grew up in. Um, so there was a lot of, uh, you know, my my dad kind of smacked us around a little bit. You know, because we got in trouble, and yeah, you know, I don't think there was no such thing as, not that it, it wasn't child abuse, but back in 1970, your dad took off his belt and he smacked you, and mm-hmm. that was handling your business in 1970. 19- there was no CPS and all that stuff, and, and that was in the lobby of church. On yeah, a Sunday. exactly. You know, and um so you know it's just handling your business you know and um especially with six kids oh yeah and you know my i mean i have abandonment issues being the youngest of six kids and my parents the, the whole family unit was intact but my mom was just tired at the end you know what i mean like i got away with a lot of stuff and not you know nothing that really helped me out either you know i mean hey johnny did you do your homework yeah you know nothing got checked you know i mean i um but i I always had this sort of abject fear of of adults of especially men you know because everybody was my father you know and that rager and and um it, it just it wasn't until uh i got sober that that fear really started to dissipate and where the the oddest thing which was a really quite a a revelation to me being such a scared, introverted kid, because I'm no longer uh, as scared and as introverted. And people that I, you know, people that see me on Facebook, they went to, you know, high school with me. And, you know, I graduated high school with people that I was in kindergarten with. I stayed in the same, you know, I had, you know, which is quite a luxury. I mean, my fiance moved around every, you know, six, eight different schools that she went to, you know, and um, so, th- I mean, they wouldn't recognize me, who I am that, today. That, just that, shock, uh, that shocks me to hear you say that you're introverted. Oh, just so just scared. I was in a shell. Just I was in the tuck position. Um, and, and it wasn't until I got sober, because I remember when, when, when I was out there, when I was bottoming out, out in the desert, um, Best place to bottom up, Absolutely. Too. In the summer, too, of 96. So, you know, it's, it's when, when, when the low temperature is 99, you know, at, at 1 in the morning, you know, you know you're, you're, you've definitely got a winner. If you're going to do it, do it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, and I remember I used to, um, I saw a hustle done on me at the AM, PM. On Riverside and Lancashire, like,
0: like a Seven Eleven.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the gas station, and this kid came up to me and he said, "I'm trying to make my way home to such and such. Can you give me?" A... And I just remember thinking to myself, "That's genius. That's mm-hmm. genius. Who doesn't want to go home, mm-hmm. right? Right?" And so that was my that was my line. You know what I mean? And that became and, your line. Yeah. And I'm like, "Hey, I'm trying to make my way home." back to Pasadena and and I'll never forget. There was a guy in the, uh, out in, in Palm Springs and he said, you show me a registration that says you live in Pasadena and I'll give you two bucks. And I showed him my registration. He's like, oh, here's your money, you know, and I'll never forget. I mean, the people, people were the general public are pushovers, you know, <laughs> like, and it wasn't until I was backed against a corner where I really needed to assert myself And it wasn't like I was strong arm robbing anybody. You know, I was just, I was bumming money. And then I also, um, I did the universal, um, sign that my car is broken down and I put the, the hood up, even though my line was that I was run out of gas, (laughs) right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I knew the power of communication. Nothing. If if my car is over there and I point to my car and it's just sitting there and nobody's. But when if I put my hood up on the car, it says I'm broken down. Right. Yeah. And I'm a photographer, you know, a visual. So I'm all about visuals. And and, and so even though the. I was, you know, technically run out of gas, which I kind of always was because they got in the way of my using. Um, it. I just, I just remember thinking to myself, like, "Wow, this is, I am a genius," you know. Mm-hmm. And, and people would just be like, and, "And I remember, like this." I remember. How this, much would you make a day doing that? Uh, on a just enough day? to leave. Just to, I would put a few bucks in, in in the tank and then and then go score. You know, I mean. Uh, I remember one guy like rolled his, rolled his arms eyes and he was like, I don't have any money here. Here's 10 bucks. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, and I was just like, wow. And I remember there was this one family where they, I made 20 bucks. Like I got like five from the back seat, 10 from the front seat and another five from the drive. You just you know, rubbing your hands together. And, and I'm just going, the general public are pushovers. What was, what was I so afraid of growing up? You know, like it right. really shattered these, you know, I got sober 30. So I, for 30 years, this like adults are scary and don't interact, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I heard a line and I remember my dad later on when I was probably 10 years sober. or So I, I went home you know, my parents were getting up there in age and my, my dad, um, you know, they've got money, but they're not, the, the, the yard is totally overgrown in their house. The, the, the shrubs are above the garage (laughs) line uh, on the house. It's a two story, you know, colonial and, and I'm just, and I went out there for a few weeks to just go to be of service to my folks, you know what I mean? And do some yard work. And it was, you know, around November time and, um, you know, I took the, I mean, I had to break out the chainsaw and stuff like that. And, and I tr- trimmed the hedges really great in the front. And, and then there was this one rhododendron in the front that I trimmed that apparently I wasn't supposed to trim. And my dad went off on me in a tirade for a solid five minutes, which seemed like five hours what the f is how, how can stupid fuck, fuck here okay how the fuck are you stupid that's the stupidest fuck how can you bro? just going on and on of how stupid that i was of why did i cut that trip and i'll never forget just the feeling and here i am in the house that i grew up in since i'm five and i'm flashback to like a eight-year-old boy you know and how long ago did this happen? oh this was 2007 so i've okay. been sober for 10 years at the time you know what i mean and i would just remember very small voice started in my head and then it started vocalizing through my mouth and it said you don't get to talk to me this way you don't get to talk to me and then i've learned and i've learned in the i, I worked in the restaurant industry a lot and as a waiter and i Remember the one great people skill that I learned there was when people are yelling at you if you whisper it forces them to stop cuz really? they can't hear you yeah when they're yelling at you and you say yeah. sir hold on a second just and if you start whispering to them they have to bring it down because it also embarrasses them and shows them how loud they're being yeah. but it also forces them to be able to listen to you and they have to stop talking for a minute if you're whispering yeah. to them. Not super, but just, and I just it just brings down the whole energy of the Actually, conversation. Now that I think of it, when
0: I would be having a show with an unruly crowd, typically second show on Friday, mm-hmm. um, I would get really quiet and that would, and that would bring them down. But I never thought about that
1: on a one-to-one interaction. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and I remember you know, calling my, you know, mentor at the time, because I, you know, and I, I kept just saying, you don't get to talk to me this way. And then it started getting louder and louder and louder. And I just turned around and I grabbed the car keys and, and I laughed, you know, I mean, I just vacated the house, you know, I just needed to uh, exit that, you know, that energy, you know, and just go decompress and make a few phone calls. And, um, and I remember my, one of my other mentors that I called, this one guy, and he said, he said, um, "Alcoholics and drug addicts have the inability, control the duration and intensity of an emotional state."
0: Say that one more time.
1: Alcoholics and drug addicts have the absolute inability to control the duration. Or intensity of an emotional state. Their own emotional yes. state. Which just ding, 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 ding. My dad, he was... I mean, was, I was he refer- the hedge... Ch- was he referring to your dad or you? My dad. Okay. Just freaking out I got for you. such... For so long and so intense because I trimmed the hedges wrong. I love too that in a f- a front lawn grown to the roof. Right. That is. Right. But you, there was one that was off in the front that was not part of next to the house that they liked. I, I don't know, you know what I mean? And it was, it was just, it was. It was just one of those. It was a really eye-opening experience to also be able to, um, to be able to stand up to my father, which, I mean, that was not in the cards, you know. And I'll never forget. And I've, I've always been a struggling artist. And you know, when my, when I, when I travel home, um, my dad would always give me like. 300 bucks like walking around money. And when I would get there, I'd be like, here, here's some, you know, and then when I left, he'd give me, you know, another couple hundred bucks or something like that. And I was always gr- grateful for it. You know what I mean? And didn't expect it is just, and, um, you know, that had gone on for a couple of years that I had come out to visit. And, uh, the next, cause I'm, I'm debating whether or not I should leave or not physically, like change my plane ticket and go back to Los Angeles. And my one mentor said, you know what? You, you'll punish your mom by doing that. You know what I mean? Like your dad's not gonna change. And um, why don't you just stick it out, you know? And uh, keep getting into a lot of, you know, support groups and getting out there and doing, doing what you need to do. And I'll never forget, uh, my dad walked into the bedroom the next morning And he handed me an envelope with $1,000 in cash and said, I'm sorry about yesterday. And then he left. And I just started to cry for my dad because the best that he could do, I don't even think he said he was sorry because I don't think he usually emotionally capable of, he's just like, that's the best that my dad could do, you know? And it was, I was so sad for him that he just knows to throw money at stuff. He has no other coping skills. He's got no other, he doesn't know how to communicate his feelings. And, you know, my dad had a really, really difficult life growing up and his dad died early. You know what I mean? So I know that he's got a ton of wreckage, too. You know what I mean? So it's not like he's... But it was just one of those moments of clarity and sobriety of like, wow. You know, just really powerful. So, you know, growing up was not... I mean, I had an older brother. Um, He was 17 years old when I was born. He was off to college. He went to University of Virginia. I was still in diapers, and he was out of the house. I never really knew him. Um, You know, we we still talk. We talk on the phone, but 17 years older than I am. And then I have four sisters, you know, so which that was challenging, you know. Um, How so? Just, you know, just it really gave me some real great insight into women, as a result, you know what I mean? I think I read, uh, I always, I always joke around when I, I say I read every issue of Cosmo from 79 to 89 that was left in the, in the bathroom. And, you know, and I, I, uh, I, I knew more about, uh, water retention, multiple orgasms, and, you know, <laughs> uh, heavy flow days than any 10 year old <laughs> should know. And I was like, Oh my God, I am behind the wall. This is some privy information. Um, Yeah, you know, I don't know. It just, there was no, my dad was out making money. He wasn't really around and just had my sisters and we used to fight a lot and stuff. It was just really, really weird. I I just kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. You know what I mean? A little bit of, like I said, abandonment issues, just being lost in the shuffle, which I didn't, that stuff didn't surface until I got sober of like, wow, I because I thought abandonment issues, you needed to actually be abandoned right. and, you know, a broken home or, you know, somebody died or this and that and the other. and But, you know, sure enough, I can have dysfunction with stuff still being intact. <laughs> it's,
0: it, it's so interesting how we don't realize that major stuff until we experience healthy relationships. And yeah. then we realize the absence of what was there and that that can... Fuck us up, or you know, trigger issues that then we can go. Oh, okay. How can I control that now? Well, when my dad yells at me, I can walk away instead of trying to yeah. to change him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. Fascinating.
0: So let's let's fast forward then to the
1: teenage years. Am I skipping
0: over anything from from childhood?
1: No, not really. I mean, just you know, it, it was just really awkward and, uh, shy, just a shy kid, you know, um, uh, t- teenage years, uh, I started to play in a band. I, I learned how to play bass guitar in eighth grade or whatever, and joined a band and, um, and that was a great escape for me and, and, and music. And that started to, you know, become a lot for me. I wasn't a reader, you know, I know I've, I know a lot of people's stories are that they, Got engrossed in books, and that was their, you know, kind of fantasy stuff. And they would, you know, um, kind of get out of, you know, be in a whole different place. And um, uh, I was massive ADHD to this day, and I mean, you know, people are like, oh, I just want to curl up with a good book is like nails on a chalkboard for really? me. Yeah, I just what's I, the,
0: what's the fantasy for you to deal with it when you're anxiety or your adhd is having its way
1: um i i do um i do visual stuff i tweak out on video games at home to what, this, what are to some this, of the favorites to this day battlefield 3 of course yeah. i mean I, I i'm but i'm i'm so extreme like so of course you can't just play the game because you're playing with you know, 32 versus 32, you got 64 people in a game and you know, there's, you're flying in a helicopter with a guy and you're not able to really communicate other than the typing, typing to the guy, you know, and you, that's granted he speaks or understands English. So I'm on the voice over IP, you know, mm-hmm. I've joined a clan, you know, I mean, yeah. we've, so I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, but the experience is so much better as a result because you've got this whole group and everybody's actually doing something that's focused rather than everybody running around like an ant farm, you know. Um, and probably
0: there's a feeling of the greater good, no matter how shallow and fantasy
1: yeah. like that is. It's, oh, yeah.
0: You've got a purpose for that, oh, for that
1: moment. Absolutely. I mean, and I can, you know, I can go for... Uh, you know, because you can't, you can't just log on for forty five minutes. I mean, you can't. There's, you don't, you you got to be able to go deep. You know? uh,
0: I go until the hunger <laughs> is so intense, or my bladder is going to
1: explode. Yeah, there's, yeah. So, um, yeah. So I I I joined a band, and and music was a bit of an escape, and um, um, and I got we played at a at a middle school. In a town in Upper Saddle River, and uh, and these girls were screaming. And so we're probably ninth. I'm in ninth grade. My my best friend Greg Mayo. He's in tenth grade, and and the drummer was in tenth grade too. And um, I remember we played this middle school, and these girls were like screaming. It was like the Beatles, you know what I mean? And like we were, and they were like screaming, and we were like, oh my god. And I was, you know, it was just really um, weird, um, but awesome all on the same, right. You know, and one of these girls tracked me down and, you know, back in that day when you lived in another town and went to a different school, you might as well lived in another country. You know I mean? And s- even though we really only lived about a mile away from each other. Um, she lived in upper saddle river and I lived in the, in Mawa, but I lived right on the edge of upper saddle river and, um, she, she got my number somehow and we started talking on the phone and I didn't know what she looked and then we finally met up after like me you know so, so then we you know this was my first girlfriend and um you know that went you know horribly well um you know those 12 hour phone conversations where you're nodding off and like I need you, you no know, and you're like trying to come up you're trying to one up each other I want you no I need you I can't live without, you know, no, you hang up first. (laughs) Did you fall asleep? No, no. What, What makes you think of, what makes you think of, I would never do that to you. I'm just insane, you know? So, um, that didn't go well. It went well for a time and, um, you know, and then it didn't. And then we were breaking up and. Um,
0: Had she found a shittier band? No, no,
1: it was just it was just getting too weird with us and just too intense. And we were were like, you know, and I'll never forget. My sister Kathy told me as we were breaking up, she's like, I bet And her name was Aaron. She goes, I bet you and Aaron want to get married. And I was like, I was so horrified because I was like, you've been listening to our conversation. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, like, we're the only... I'm the only 17 year old and she's the only 15 year old that has ever, th- we're getting married. So you were together for a long time? We were there for a few years. You know what I mean? And, and, um, um, but, you know, we invented that we should get married. At, you know what I mean? Nobody oh, else had ever God. thought of this at our age. So when my sister told me, I knew that she was, I mean, this was all before, you know, the NSA kind of stuff <laughs> and, uh, the wiretapping, but, um, and I just remember being horrified. And then and then after five minutes later, realizing that I'm just an asshole. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, you get in line. Everybody had these same feelings and you're not alone, idiot. Um, so we were breaking up um, and we were working at the same... We um, were working at this... At Vanson Park in Paramus. We were, we're working at the... Uh, concession stand in the park together. And, um, she was going into work that day. I was going into the work that day. And like the, and the parents got involved too. And it was like, you know, it's, you know, it's really jumped the shark when like parents are getting involved. And so, um, you know, my sisters were like, you're not, you're not going to work today because, you know, Aaron's going to be there and you guys, this isn't, it's not good. And I'm like, Oh yes, I am. I'm going to work. I have a job. I'm going to work. And like my sisters, like, physically got in front of me you know what i mean like and i remember my my mom like physically stood in front of me and i pushed my mom like not hard but like something that i would never do you know what i mean but it was they were really like just up in my grill you know what i mean and really you know um and so i i i went into my room and i locked the door and I just, I cranked my stereo up to the loudest that it could possibly go to the point where my one sister ran downstairs and just started throwing fuses until she hit my bedroom. <laughs> it, you know, and, and they call the police, you know, so, cause now I'm quote unquote out of control, you know, and in Mawa, when you call the police, they all show up. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they come in, I'm just sitting on my bed and this cop fucking tackle like just fucking tackles it's me on his my one bet. chance it's, it's his one mean? chance you yeah. know like and like threw his hand behind my head threw my my head down and put my arm be, and i got out of it and like kicked the guy across the room like just like <laughs> launched him across the room and so then like you know six of them now jump on me and now i am leaving literally hogtied hand and feet behind you know what i mean like you could have put a pole in between, you know what I mean? Yeah. And just carried me. And so they're, they're escorting me down the stairs. I am screaming. I'm like doing my Linda Blair. I'm like screaming profanity. I am just having a meltdown, which in and of itself would have been bad enough of an event. But my sister, was having her wedding shower that morning and guests were arriving. <laughs> hey, hey, Mary, uh, hey Marianne, I was gonna ask you how your kid brother is doing, but judging by the twelve cop cars, uh he looks like he's doing pretty shitty. Um you know and uh as my buddy Randy O'Lay says, you do they don't uh lock you up in Camarillo State Mental Hospital for thinking crazy. They lock you up for acting crazy. And uh, I was acting crazy. And so, you know, they put me in a, you know, suicide watch. And, you know, I'm 18 now. I'm
0: uh, Had you mentioned that you were suicidal or did they just interpret that you were no, suicidal? No, I
1: was suicidal. I had done some some superficial cuts on my wrist prior to that. And you know what I mean? Nothing. So over, yeah. over the break, over the breakup. And you Had know, she broken up with you. I don't even remember, you know, um, I forget exactly the specifics. Uh, but possibly, yeah. I mean, um, or it was mutual that we just both weren't, it just wasn't working for either one of us. Um, so, yeah, and I, uh that was, I don't even know when that was. That was maybe October of my senior year of high school in 84. And uh I was there until, like, Christmas wow. in Bergen Pines Mental Hospital, which is in Paramus, New Jersey. I think it's, they changed the name now, but um just out of my mind you know and you want you know and i've been depressed a lot in sobriety you know and i've even you know because suicide is always sort of that ace i always keep up my sleeve you know i mean because mm-hmm. it's it's just it just is it's just who i am i'm a uh, depressive by nature and it's sort of cyclical and um and I've I've even thought about in sobriety of like, ah, I should check myself in on like a fucking fifty-one fifty, just do a seventy-two hour. Old. And then I'm thinking to myself, no, you want real crazy like if you think you're crazy, check yourself into a mental hospital. You will see some real crazy and about fourteen minutes into it, you're gonna realize, fuck, I'm not this bad, you know? And um, so I had met some interesting folks there. Um you know, it was really, really interesting and really sad, just really sad. And I remember this one when they had to go to court by law, you had to show up in court and the doctor and this one kid came back, man. And he was not really that great educated. And he said something like the doctor called me in core in and I go incorrigible. And he said, yeah, that's the word. What does that mean? And I'm like, Uh, you know, it's no big, you know, no, no big deal. You know what I mean? I just didn't want to fucking be the one to deliver the news, you know? And I mean, here's just a bunch of kids that are like 17, 18 and you know, they're, it was just, it was sad, you know, it was, it was really sad. And, um, it was really interesting. And I'll never forget when I came back into school, I had been gone from my senior year of high school for two and a half months just gone and nobody really knew I was gone anyway because I was not even a blip on the fucking radar anywhere because I was just so introverted and shy and a few people knew and I'll never ever forget the school nurse saying to me did they tell you what you should tell any of the kids while you've been gone for two and a half months did she know she knew yeah Yeah. as as a nurse I think she was she needed to know for legal reasons or whatever she knew And I said, no, I don't have a story to tell anybody. And she looked at me with such sadness and compassion of like this poor kid. And I'll never forget that feeling of the school nurse going.
0: Wow. How did it, did it feel good? Did it feel bad? It felt
1: horrible. Yeah. Felt horrible of like. You don't even, you you know, you should have come up with a cover story, you know, like we're, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, thank God I wasn't, you know, up for, you know, homecoming king or any shit like that. I mean, nobody, not that many people even knew that I was gone. You know, it was just really, really interesting. And then when I got out of the, and I, I had not taken a drink. Yet, Cause I had seen my dad, I had seen the, the instances and how he treated my mom and, um, just a lot of verbal abuse and emotion, you know, no real physical ab- abuse at all. But, um, and my dad was, uh, he was a lawyer. So everybody was stupid, mm-hmm. you know, and my, my mom was one of nine from a very, very blue collar. Oh, you're, you, you don't get an education. You're going to wind up like your uncles. Look at them fixing TVs for a living, I love it. you know, and, um, and it was just, uh, so from when I got out of the hospital, I made a conscious decision that the world is not a safe place and I need to get high, but I can't drink cause I don't really like the taste of drinking and I don't like what it did to my dad. I saw what it did to my dad and, um, uh, started smoking weed. Then started selling weed because I was good at, you know, good enough at math to understand that you could <laughs> buy an ounce, you know, in Nyack on, on the, you know, right on the river there and right by the Tappan Zee Bridge and sell it to all your friends for four times the price. So, and, um, yeah. And then it escalated. And then, um, I started doing a uh, little purple micro dot mescaline, which, mm-hmm. you know, I don't um and again you could go to the south bronx and buy them for a dollar a piece and sell them for four and seemed like a good idea at the time and uh i was in another band at the time and um we um uh, over at this guys house the guitarist's house this is probably may of 85 senior year of high school still um i got a bag of like 30 pills, little Ziploc bag in the front of my shorts. My shorts don't have any pockets. I, uh, we're over at this kid's house and the dad asks us to move some big items up to the curb for trash pickup, like, you know, the once a year, you know, spring cleaning kind of thing. And, and I grabbed a guard old garden hose and I dragged it up and it rubbed up against my shorts and the bag fell out onto the front lawn of these 30 kits of mescaline and nobody saw it. Nobody knew. I didn't know it was gone. And so we're watching, we're eating pizza, we're watching faces of death, okay, because that's what you do when you're 18 <laughs> in 1985 and you're all, you know, testosteroneed out. And, um, and the dad walks in and he goes, I found a bag of purple pills on the front lawn. Does anybody claim them? And you can hear a fucking pin drop. I mean, there's probably like 10 of us, and, you know, and nobody threw me under the bus. And we all just played dumb. And then, um, we, uh, we leave and i have a separate stash of, like a good pre-drug addict in, in training i had a separate stash we all dose we all take a, a hit and uh we start playing and you know we're starting to come on and uh brian proctor's mother i'll never figure she interrupts band practice and we're we're, we're like in a like the we're we're doing crazy train now you know ozzy yeah. and you know we're into the chorus at this point or something and uh And she says, she interrupts band practice and she says, Keith, who's the house we were just at, she goes, you need to get home immediately. Your mom is on the way to the hospital on a bad trip and your dog is dying. For reasons yet obscure, they found this bag of 30 pills and I think, to this day, I don't know what she was thinking. I think she thought they were like sprinkles for cupcakes or something like that and she ate a handful of them. Maybe they poured them into the trash maybe the trash spilled out onto the floor and their dog, their purebred German shepherd named Trooper that everybody loved in the neighborhood licked them off the floor and died. Now this guy how shall we say this it all took place in North Jersey. Anybody that's watched the Sopranos understands that that entire storyline was based in North Jersey. And this guy was in the quote unquote vending machine business, you know, the, and the uh, father, the of, father of the, of the family. Yeah. So, and that's the guy that had found him on the front. Lawn. Yes. Yes. And he, I'll never forget. We're in a huge house. I'm in, it's in a two story house. I'm in the, basement he is at the front door banging on the front door now he's back from the hospital and he's looking for me
0: how and did he know it was you
1: they, they gave me up at that point uh, okay. you know what i mean when yeah. when the mom wound up in the hospital they yeah. you know they gave me up i mean i don't can't blame him uh so um and he's like where is he that kid was eating pizza that i bought over in my fucking house where is he i'm gonna kill him I'm going to kill him. I'm in the vending machine business. I break kneecaps for a living. Where is he? And I just remember being on the run, you know, and I'm tripping. Don't, don't don't get, I'm still, you know, I'm still on mescaline at the time. So, um, just total, total fucking nightmare, you know? Um, yeah, just not one of my high points, you know? Um, ominous warning which i failed to heed you know i have not touched an ounce of alcohol in my story um smoking a little bit of weed taking some mess i'm six months into my drug career and i put a mobster's wife in the hospital and i killed their dog and i will go head to head with anybody on this podcast or anywhere that i am the biggest dog lover that there is you know, when I came home as a newborn from the hospital, we had dogs. I always had dogs in the house. And, and, uh, when you went on the run, did that guy ever catch up with you? No. Um, I remember the next morning, my mom came in crying. I guess they had called the house, obviously. And my dad, being the lawyer that he is, I don't want you to talk to anybody about anything. Blah, 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 blah. You just like totally like zero compassion. It's just like just a fucking lawyer talking to a client. You know, I was like, gee, thanks dad. You know? um, And what, re- I think what really triggered, uh, they had a daughter who was probably five years older who had been in and out of rehab. And it was like, wow, one more time, drugs, are infiltrating our lives, you know? Um, But yeah, it just, um, and I think they knew their son was involved too. So I don't know for whatever reason, but they just, it just kind of dissipated and didn't really come to a head, you know? So So what's, what's the next kind of seminal moment in your downslide? So I moved out to Los Angeles because New Jersey, my family is the problem, right? <laughs> if I can just, you know, the tender age of 24, tear in my eye. Uh, I drove cross country. I photographed all the national parks of the Western United States on a three month, 17,000 mile driving tour of the Rocky Mountains to the West Coast, man. And it was probably, and it was Well, I didn't even realize it at the time, but it was one of my first spiritual experiences that I ever, you know, um, and it was something that I was able to draw on once I got back, once I got sober, it was to realize that, yeah, I didn't make any of that stuff, you know, just sitting inside Glacier National Park and at nighttime watching, you can see the Milky Way. And I mean... I'm a kid from Jersey. You know, you can't, you don't get to see many stars there based on just the, just the scattered light from all the street lights and stuff like that. And you can see satellites flying through the sky and really? Montana. yeah, I mean, just fascinating. I mean, you can see the space shuttle if you're, if the space shuttle is up, I mean, you can, it's really fascinating. It's shit I had never seen before and it was just really fascinating. And, you know, shortly there in, uh, you know, I had a lot of entitlement issues. The world owed me. Where's mine? You know. Let's, let's just go back real quickly to that
0: that spiritual feeling that you had. Can you describe it? W-
1: was it a conscious thing? Was it just a feeling in your body? It was a it was a feeling like that. I'm I'm. It was very it was very humbling that you there. Look at all of those stars. Every one of those is is is, is a sun and could possibly have orbiting planets with life and you are a grain of sand on the beach and you're really not that important in, in a good way, not in a, you know, like your problems aren't that big or just that. Well, no, because my problems are my problems and they're at, you know, if they're in the red zone, red lining for me, then there's, you know, it was more of a, um, there is a much greater, bigger, picture out I there i see and you are you're you're not you're just you're not that important the, the you're a cog in the wheel and now you're like there's about a billion cogs in this wheel when you thought there were only like six you know um so i just got downgraded quite a bit you know but it was good it was it was very humbling and it was very um It was very refreshing, you know, and to see a moose in the Grand Tetons and actual, you know, I mean, I've not that I've ever, I've never seen a moose before. I've never seen, you know, bison and elk and, you know, just, it was just really fascinating. Do you think it helped that you were by yourself? Absolutely. I love, I'm, I really love being by myself. Um. I I was able to do my own thing as a result of being by myself. I met a million people along the way. I met a lot of like a lot of Germans. This was fall of 1990 as we were sending troops to Kuwait for the first invasion and um and there were a lot of Germans. I think the exchange rate was really great and and they were like riding there I was meeting guys riding bicycles through the rock from you know glacier national park down to colorado you know wow like doing thousand mile treks on their bike and camping out you know and i met them in the campgrounds and um it was just it was really interesting and i just and i got to tell people a little bit about america you know and the the little that i knew is some kid from jersey who didn't really get out much you know and um it, it was it was really interesting it was just very eye-opening and um just the sheer beauty and so what happened was when the Gulf War broke out, which was on my birthday, which my my natal birthdays is, is January sixteenth of sixty seven but it technically it was uh the seventeenth local time Baghdad, but it was the sixteenth, and on you know it's like where were I was in a laundromat in San Diego, and I remember you know hearing the you know hearing flashes over Baghdad and And I'll never forget how patriotic that I felt after having seen America for the first time. You know what I mean? Because I had toyed with the idea because 88 was the centennial or bicentennial of Australia. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was, I was like, oh, I'd love to go to Australia. And I remember thinking to myself, what are you going to say when they say, how does, how, what's the Grand Canyon like? Have you ever been to Yellowstone National... I'm like, I've never even seen fucking America. How dare I go off and be abroad and try to be some, you know, ambassador? I've got nothing to say about America other than, you know, Jersey and Manhattan, which is great. But it's just not America. And um, I just remember feeling really, really patriotic when the... You know, I was not as obviously as political as I am today, but I was just really patriotic that we were at war and this is America and I don't know it was really interesting
0: and and uh, I find it interesting too because you are left-leaning correct yeah and a lot of people assume that people on the left aren't patriotic and I and I like that yeah you prove that quite the opposite um liberals though many of them are accused of being too hard on America yeah. that I think many liberals, myself included, it comes from a place of loving this country and yeah. wanting to see it do the right thing. Yeah. Um. Not to, not to take it down. I try not to be political at all on this podcast, yeah. but I felt like that was an important yeah. thing to make. Can you, going back to the being in photographing the national parks, can you talk about the difference? I, I'm always encouraging people on this podcast to break out of their isolation but there's a difference between isolating and solitude and i don't know how to express what that difference is can you take a crack at it
1: during my trip just in general because i
0: know i know you understand the difference between that while while solitude
1: is a healthy thing and isolating isn't well isolating is when I, i this is just you know this is just my opinion Shared by thousands. Um, but <laughs> um, like, for instance, last week, my my fiancé had sp- spine surgery two weeks ago. And so last week, major surgery, we run on this whole fundraising drive and th- thank you for your contribution. And we went on this huge GoFundMe fundraising thing and we raised enough money for her to get the surgery. So we were having uh, a gathering at our house of you know mutual friends and they were coming by and um, and um, I had just gotten back into town, I had just driven into town and I had to unpack the car and they were having a little powwow out there in the back and I consciously made a decision not to be a part of and it's just my defiant It's so I think isolation is when you when I'm given an opportunity to participate in something and I give it the bird, you know, I just flip it off and I'm like, NFW, I'm not going just based on just because I can say no and maybe I'm going to exert some pseudo power by saying no and um, and it didn't feel good, you know, and although I did have a lot of work to do and I needed to eat and I get really insane when I don't eat and my blood sugar, I, you know, um, but I just I just wasn't feeling it. I just wasn't feeling it at all and uh and then I I went up and lay down in bed before that meeting was even over and stuff and people were like where's Johnny where's Johnny and I could hear them downstairs saying that and I was just I, you know as I you know, I I treat loneliness with isolation you know when I'm in that mind space it's a spiral and it's it's not good I'm not going to fix the negativity what's going on with my negative uh, mindset. It just doesn't, it's this downward spiral and um, yeah, I get it. I get it. And I'm going to exert my will and I'm not going to go just to spite you guys. You guys are having a good time. I hear you guys laughing out there and, and I sit with my arms crossed and I'm not invited. No, I was invited by everybody, (laughs) you know, and they were sad that I wasn't there, but i just just not in a good i haven't been in a good headspace lately in general, you know i mean my gal's been really sick for really on and off for three years, and i the whole focus has been on her and as it should be you know what i mean and 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 they she's got a, a twenty she's forty she's got a twenty three year old daughter she has a daughter when she's seventeen, and everybody left. Her daughter was turning 23 and they went up to central California up to Tara's mom's house, took the dogs, everybody. I was doing some work uh, in Simi Valley. So, and I had the house to myself for a weekend, no dogs, nobody. And I lost my mind. I had an absolute meltdown and was like borderline suicide because it all came crashing down of like, Oh my God, Johnny, you have not taken any time for yourself in the last three years. You have not been able to walk through the house naked shower with the door open you know like what it, and it it hit me like a ton of bricks and it was just really fascinating um of how that hit me you know and it was really you know and I'm just I'm on I'm on the road a lot I'm working uh, I'm I'm the sole breadwinner now and 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 Tara's health issues have been very, very serious. Oh, yeah. I mean, she had her first round of health issues, which was her, she had an underactive thyroid. She has something called Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune disease where your body goes and attacks your thyroid, which for those of you that don't know, and I didn't know, it's the really the central computer that runs all of your hormones, everything, you know, and, and she couldn't get out of bed. For a year, you know, she was just fatigued, she'd do a load of laundry and felt like she just worked an 18-hour day on her feet, and she was not sleeping, and she gained a bunch of weight, and right after that, she was having ovarian cysts, which is like a stabbing pain, and, and pain pills were her thing, you know, and she needed to be on them, uh, on and off, and it's like... And she was a sober person? Yeah. Still yeah. is? Yeah. She's mm-hmm. coming up on five years, and... It's like, don't poke the bear, you know, but, and what I realized through all of this, which is really fascinating. And I know, cause I mean, I'm hyper vigilant on, you know, pain pills, taking people out is if you're in legitimate pain, you can take pain pills as prescribed. I mean, you can, they work on the actual physical pain. Um, and it was a really, um, interesting thing and another thing which i've heard a lot is um never tell you know always tell your doctor that you're in recovery yeah yeah and probably one of this is just my opinion and i've seen it probably one of the worst things that you can do because then you're only going to get advil they won't sometimes they won't give you anything citing well we don't want to Mm -hmm. trigger you know what i mean and and um we had moved up to washington state for her to have a job with health insurance and that was an absolute nightmare we were in vancouver washington which is not the end of the world but you can see it from there uh right over the border from portland i didn't even know there was a vancouver washington i knew vancouver bc it's a beautiful city you know um and um you know just we wanted to have kids. That was she's got a you know twenty three year old daughter. I don't have any kids. I'm forty six. We wanted to have kids, and that was what brought our relationship from pencil to ink. Was okay. You want to have more? Because I wasn't sure if she wanted to have more kids, and um, you know she found out that she had to have a hysterectomy as a result. You know she was getting her period for six weeks at a time, and they had to take the one ovary out, and you know it was just a lot of grief and loss goes behind that that it's you know when we were we were fighting a lot too and you know what i mean and um she was you know beforehand with the with the the thyroid issue like her hormones like they were having her on testosterone they had her on all these you know and as my mentor ralph says to me he goes johnny you ain't talking to tara no more You're talking to her fear representative. Tara's been long gone. And that is no, there is no truer statement. You know, I mean, we were just, she's scared understandably yeah you know what i mean and like and i always kid around meetings with her there and i'm like you know like even moving back to los angeles and she found out that she was um, a victim of um identity theft and stuff like that and she's like we're totally we're totally fucked we're never gonna have a we're never gonna find a place we're never but there's nothing i can do or say to her that's going to make it any better. Mm -hmm. And she needed to have her own experience. And through all of this, you know, she has found out that, you know, the kindness of strangers with this GoFundMe site, you know what I mean? And um, she was very humbled by it all. And a kinder, gentler Tara has emerged as a result. And somebody who's got a lot of faith because based on experience, that's where my, Oh, my faith is not, oh, I heard some guy tell a story. (laughs) No, it's real world shit that took place. I mean, that's where.
0: And sometimes by doing nothing, by not reacting, can be the most spiritual thing that we can do, which is oftentimes the hardest thing to do. Yeah. Um,
1: And she was on the verge of being paralyzed
0: by this growth in her spine. She had a two
1: inch tumor inside her spine covering T9 through 12, which is T, the thoracic uh, vertebrae. And it's press. It was pressing on her nerves, and to the point where she was losing feeling in her extremities, and she was starting to lose bladder control. I mean, and, and the the this, the spine surgeon saw the MRI, and and you know, and she used to go into emergency rooms. She was she just, I mean, picture walking home. You come home, um, you know. I, I do these sales gigs. I'm on the road for ten days, and I come home, and you you're Fiance is just sitting around the house, fucking crying all day, just in absolute pain, you know, even taking pain pills. And it's just not, you know, and it's just a really powerless, helpless feeling and um, just really, really, really challenging. Did
0: you make any conscious decision to, to feed your soul, to take care of yourself? No. I, I know you had that epiphany when... You were in the house by
1: yourself. No, that was there. That epiphany took place. That was when I realized how I had been neglecting myself. And how long Uh, ago was that? Oh shit. That was only, that was into September. That was a month ago. Okay. You know, so, I mean, um, I've just realized that you need to put the oxygen mask on yourself first. And then, you know, the kid or the passenger, you know, or whatever. And, uh, it's, it's been challenging. My whole focus has been on her and challenging to be, Uh, around her and some of the times i was like i'm i'm glad i'm leaving for the next 10 days because we this we need to turn it into like like a tinder box you know so i want to hear you
0: talk about your experience in the desert
1: you could parachute me into bangkok thailand not speaking any time like you give me 20 minutes and i'm finding somebody that has dope i mean i think it's a skill set that many of us possess um and i'll never forget i was at a at a recovery place and we're going around it's there's only there's like eight guys eight girls and you know we needed the bed space and um i wasn't done you know and i knew enough uh that i wasn't done and um And I shared at the noon meeting there within the house. And I said, I'm leaving. I'm making a conscious effort to leave. And I'm going to go get loaded. I'm not going to sugarcoat this at all. Uh, It's 1220 right now. I will be high by 4 p.m. I will be in hell by 415. I do not want anybody to envy me for what I'm about to do. But it's necessary and part of my plan and sure enough and i you know found some dope houses and you know hang out with some some gang members some brothers from south central la that uh that had been thrown out of south central la which is a feat in and of itself It's sort of like the was <laughs> the one guy like the, the drummer for guns and roses that got thrown out for doing too much dope you know like i don't really. I don't really understand how you get thrown out of a band like that by doing two like you've gotta be doing an exorbitant amount yeah. of dope to be thrown out of a band like that. So, um yeah, this was the cream of the crop and the brothers took one look at me and like, who let this cop in? You know, and they fucking patted me down for a microphone and they swore that I was the police and um And this is where in the desert? This is in Desert Hot Springs, which is across the freeway from Palm Springs. it's If you're coming out, there's all the windmills that start. Palm Springs is off on the right, on the south side of the 10 Freeway, and Desert Hot Springs is off on the left, and it was it's a very different town. <laughs> and I, I don't like to say bad things about it, because there was one guy that walked up to me uh, one night, and he goes, God damn it, I just bought property out there. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, there's some nice parts, just not yeah. where I was... Vacating, and your drug that you were looking for was crack. Crack. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was it. So the brothers were were slinging crack, and there were white guys slinging meth, and meth. Really, I just didn't like it. I didn't like the the taste. I didn't like the drip, whatever. And it just was too too much. And um. And they used to um. They had a lot of guns and drive-bys and stuff like that and i'm and i'm and i'm talking to these guys and i'm going do you understand that the white guys selling meth um they're not shooting at each other when you start shooting at each other you force the hand of of law enforcement like you just based on you know the neighbors everything you know um you guys need to really chill with all the gun shit you guys got to bring it down a notch you know and um I uh, remember there was a there was a house there was a there was a crack house that I was living in in Desert Hot Springs it had no electricity bordered up windows bullet holes in the walls and stuff like that and there were probably about ten people in the house and I'm having a cocaine coma a CC on the rocks as I like to call it a <laughs> cocaine coma on the front couch I had been up for about three days and uh, and I wasn't one of like, you know those guys like, I was up for fourteen days bro like, yeah no I two three the most sorry I just was not um, so. um not that I don't like to out-bottom somebody, because that's definitely, you know, especially when you're new. Um, and it was probably like four in the morning, and, and there's only one door to get in and out, and these, these gang rival gang came by, and they poured gasoline around the house. They lit the house on fire. And they ran back out into the street, and as everybody went running out the front door, it was like, pop, 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 pop. And I just remember sitting on the couch, having a moment of clarity, going... Oh, my first drive by, you know, the promises are coming true, <laughs> the flip side ones, you know, and, um, and I remember that was the summer of 96. It was August of 96. And I remember just seeing kids with backpacks on, waiting next couple of days, waiting for school. School was starting. And I just remember thinking, Johnny, the whole world is going on. Look, at the kids are starting school again. It's the end of August. Nobody gives a shit about you and what you're doing, you know? The whole world is going on despite the fact that you are treading water here, you know? Um How did you get out of the house? I was one of the last ones out. I mean, it just it wasn't... It Nobody got hit. It wasn't... The, mm. Your aim with... with you know when you're shooting sideways with it it was then the one guy was like oh it's just a 22 anyway i'm like um <laughs> yeah you know so um and the police and fire department were 300 yards away and nobody showed up wow nobody showed up because nobody gave a shit and this is the lifestyle i'm not sure i can give up <laughs> 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 to live a life based on spiritual principles or to die an alcoholic death is not an easy choice for a guy like me. You know normal people don 't are not perplexed by that behind door number one. you can live a spiritual life behind door number two. you can die an alcoholic death that 's Normie goes, it's alcoholic death, the big liver and track marks up and down my arm. Maybe my lips burnt up from smoking out of an antenna. Yeah, I'll take spirit. I don't even know what spiritual principles is, but I'm going to take it. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm going to have to get back to you on that one, you know. Um, and I just remember just, you know, seeing this, um, these kids going back to school. And I remember, you know, I don't have any of my own kids, but I've got nieces and nephews. And, you know, and I just remember going, nobody cares. Nobody really gives a shit about the decisions that you've made in your life to become a career drug addict and um and it was just one of those moments you know, and then I found a little dog. the police came and raided thirteen addresses simultaneously, and this little black basset terrier mix thirty one pound little dog uh started following me around everywhere you know, I love dogs and I'm a little busy and I'm trying to shake this dog and I can't shake this dog. I'm, I had blown up the head gasket on my 1987 Nissan Sentra. So I'm on foot and this dog followed me fucking everywhere. And, uh, I wound up going, um, to this one place, this, this fellowship place. And this one woman walked up to me and she said, you're new, right? I was like, yeah, what gave it away? She goes, is that your dog? I'm like, "Yeah, I don't, she's been following me around. She goes, hey, there's a guy, he's about five years sober, he runs a no-kill animal shelter here in Desert Hot Springs, his name is Herb, it's a place is called Save-A-Pet, he'll give you, uh there's a, like a little house and some trailers on the property that you can live in in exchange for work. Does that sound like something you would be interested in? And I was like, uh, let me check my calendar here, uh, yeah, I'm free for the next year and a half or so. Um. You know, and I wound up staying at this no-kill animal shelter for a year, and I wound up putting nine months together, and this little dog saved my life. You know, and I remember when I had six years sober, I was speaking, and I invited Herb and this woman, Lorraine, and here's the moral of the story is that here's this woman with 15 years sober. She could have been saying hi to all of her friends, and she helped somebody that was new. She took two minutes out of her busy day, and she helped somebody that was new and it changed the course of my life and you know and uh, 360 degrees on a compass and if you if if i if i move my compass 1 degree which doesn't seem like a lot but then you 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 draw out the trajectory from 5 years 10 years 15 20 years i wind up in a completely different spot than i would have um, had that compass not have been changed and i asked her i said if i didn't have that dog that day would you have said anything to me and she said absolutely not and at the same meeting, this woman came up to me and gave me this little dog angel pin. It has a little metal pin with a dog with angel wings and a halo. And, um, I try to wear it every time that I speak and I tell my dog story. Um, so here I am at 10 years of sobriety and, uh, you know, my dog is now she's got five vertebrae fused in her neck and can't walk. And, uh, I'm, got her a little doggy wheelchair that I spent like a thousand dollars that I didn't have, you know what I mean? And custom fit. And she didn't like it. She just, it was not, she just hated it. Never gotten in the groove of it. Used to carry her outside to go pee and poop and stuff like that and, and bring her back in. And she would like, crawl and drag herself across the floor. You know what I mean? she was still fucking happy as shit. You know what I mean? She still had that feisty terrier thing in there, you know, and, um, and I find myself, I'm on some website with videos, with crazy videos on them. And there's this one video of this guy on a porch And he's a black guy and he's not wearing a shirt, older guy. And he's got shorts on and it's a police standoff. And he says he's got a gun. You know what I mean? And, and there's like 30 cops and, uh, the video goes on and the canine is there barking, you know what I mean? And they're like, come come on out or we're sending in the dog. Come on out. You know, we've all seen that. And, and, um, so they release the canine German shepherd and the guy reaches into his shorts and they all open fi- like fucking 30 cops open fire on this guy and kill him and they kill the fucking canine as a result, too, because the canine's running up on him. Mm. And the guy's got a fucking sandal that he had down his shorts. It was not a gun. It was a sandal. And the canine officer is screaming at everybody, cease fire, cease fire, and the dog's fucking dead. Like, just dead, you know, on this porch. And it was one of those moments of clarity where I was like, oh, kind of like the dog in your story, Johnny. It just so happened that this is a German Shepherd. While I didn't directly kill that dog, it was by my hand, you know. Um, And so I go and show up, you know, and the last bit of intel that I heard on this guy was that he was a raging alcoholic. And if you're anything like I am, 23 years doesn't subside a resentment. It fuels it, right? I called an ex-girlfriend of mine. I said, Listen, no drama, but here's this is what I'm doing. If you don't hear from me in a fucking hour, like call my sister, you know. This is the address where I'm gonna be. So I show up, um, there I roll up. As I roll up, they're rolling up in a PT cruiser, you know, the dad the husband and, and the wife, and I'm like, Ugh. and I'm like, it's a Sunday morning, it's like ten o'clock in the morning, and I'm like Hey, how you doing? They're like, you know, I'm like, it's Johnny Olson. you remember me? And guess what? They did. (laughs) And so I start crying. I tell them that I'm here. I brought drugs in your house. I'm here to make it right. You know, like it was, I'm sorry, and comma, and I'm here to make it right. Because sorry is not... And amends. Um, and so the dad's like, I haven't had a drink in 10 years. You know, d- didn't say he was sober. Or, you know, just um, the mom is crying and uh, and everything's cool and copacetic and things calm down a little bit. Ten minutes into it or so. And and I go not and I point to them. I talk to I'm talking to the mom now and I go, I'm not trying to discount your pain but what really haunts me is your dog. Cause I'm the biggest dog lover there is. And she goes, Oh, that old dog. He was 15 years old. He had arthritis and could hardly walk. That dog lived a rich, full life. We don't want you to feel bad about that dog. It was, it was his time to go. <laughs> How What a 23, 25 year circle of guilt and shame that I felt over this incident. Come to find out that this dog can't walk from arthritis. My dog can't walk from arthritis. And it was just one of those absolute God shot, God conscious moments of like, wow, I'm so humbled by the bigger picture. I'm so humbled by all of this you know, um, nine times out of 10, the unexpected happens. Read that somewhere. So I love that. I love the feeling of being connected with the people that I'm around in the universe and the, you know, like my sisters have lake houses up, uh, up near Lake George, upstate New York, you know, and just being out there, you know, with Tara and just and connecting with everybody, and just having it be perfect. These are the good old days, right here, right now. Johnny O, Paulie G, love you, buddy. Thank you love so you much. You too, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Many thanks to uh, to Johnny O. I hope you guys enjoy that as much uh, as much as I did. Um, before we take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you that there's a couple of different ways you can support the show if you feel so inclined. Um, you can go to the uh, the website, mentalpod.com, and uh, you can make a one-time PayPal donation or uh, my favorite, a recurring monthly donation. God bless you monthly donors out there that uh, help keep this, this podcast going. Um you can sign up for as little as 5 bucks a month, and um, once you set it up on PayPal, it just takes it out every month until you decide to cancel it or your credit card expires. Um, you can also support us uh, by searching through our Amazon search portal and uh, making your purchases through that. It doesn't cost you anything. Amazon gives us a couple of nickels. And um, you can support us uh, also by transcribing an episode of the show. Uh, email me at um, mentalpod at gmail.com and um, I can hook you up with uh, transcribing an episode. Um, Be forewarned, though, that it takes an average typist about a full day to transcribe an episode. Um, And you can support us non-financially by going uh, to iTunes, writing something nice about us, giving us a good rating, or spreading the word through social media. Um, I think that is about it. Oh, just wanted to remind you that um, there is... uh, Finally, some information about the festival in Toronto. It's called the Rendezvous with Madness Film Festival, and I'm going to be doing a live version of the podcast on uh, Saturday, November 16th at 4 p.m. My guest is going to be Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall and um, tentatively going to do a group recording uh, on Friday night the 15th, but I don't have details about that yet. But there's a link to uh, for the venue and tickets and all of that stuff on the uh, – on the homepage MentalPod uh, mental pod homepage. So uh, please go check that out. And I think that is about it. Let's get to these, uh, let's get to these pipe surveys. This, uh, these next couple are from the struggle in the sentence survey. This is filled out by Nick about his PTSD. He writes, I'm covered in gasoline and the world is made of flint and steel. Um, Turkey 101 says about uh, uh, his alcoholism and drug addiction, my alcoholism is like the cutoff switch. All feeling goes away till I wake up the next day and the switch is back on and someone turned the intensity all the way up. I really relate to that one. Um, This is from Callie Cat and she says about her obesity, it makes me feel like the whole world is watching every move I make in order to make fun of me. Uh, about her depression Sarah says it's like I'm reading the worst first-person narrative ever and I have no desire or energy to keep reading to see if it gets any better that's a great one uh, this is from the shame and secret survey this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Latin phrase and uh, he is straight and is he's 22 never been uh, sexually abused was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment Uh, He writes, I'm an only child. My parents had pretty rough childhoods, but have never really addressed them or dealt with their own issues. My dad had an affair when I was about six years old, but my parents stayed together even after they told me that they were getting a divorce. My dad stayed in contact with the woman he had an affair with until I was about 16, until my mom found out. Once again, they said they were going to get a divorce, but stayed together. I'm 22 now. It led to a lot of uncomfortable dinners and a pretty good amount of resentment in our house. My mother had a miscarriage before and after I was born, so she considers me her, quote, miracle child. She can be a little overbearing. I barely talk to my dad, and when I do, it's pretty superficial. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I think about hurting my parents a lot. It's like I'm so frustrated with our communication that every time I speak, I imagine punching her right in the head. As my dad interrupts me for the umpteenth time during a conversation, images of slamming his head through the drywall appear in my mind. They seem to have no concern for most things in my life, except when I make mistakes and have to tell them about it. Then they show some, con- some sort of concern or wonder why I'm not living up to the goals they've set for me without my approval." I think about them passing away so I would have carte blanche to do whatever I wanted without ever worrying about their approval or disapproval. Deepest Darkest Secrets All the times throughout my life I've been singled out because of my race. It's not like I'm the only young black male to face some sort of hatred, but there are times, uh, but all the times it happened growing up, I never responded the way I wish I could have. Uh, I could never think of something profound enough to say, to hurt that person like they hurt me, and I hate myself for it. I know I shouldn't harbor all this resentment, but I'm really struggling to let it go. All the black kids at school that told me I talked white and wasn't really black, but then made fun of me for how dark I was. All the suburban white kids that would slip up and say nigger around me and then give me some bullshit apology when I get pissed off. Every time I think about it, my stomach starts to boil. Uh... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I just want to be wanted. It doesn't go much farther than that right now. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Probably not. I'm a virgin and I've never had a girlfriend. My best friend doesn't know I'm a virgin because I've lied about any sexual encounters I've told him about. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Hatred, disgust, disappointment. Well, buddy, I am sending you a big hug. Sending some love your way, and um, I know this sounds like an old fuddy-duddy thing to say, but you're you're only 22 years old, and you got your whole life ahead of you. And if I try to judge how my life was at 22, um, I I don't know anybody who has been able to predict how their life would unfold. So um, just hang in there and keep talking to people that are safe to talk to. Uh, This is from the Happy Moment survey. I got quite a few of these filled out this week, so I'm going to be peppering uh, the end of the show with them. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Rob Stoner. He writes, A few years ago, I was at my best friend's house playing video games on his couch. He has an L-shaped couch, so I had room to lay down while he sat and ate ice cream. The freezer it was in was so cold that he was cutting pieces off with a knife. I suddenly became angry at something in the game and was thrown into a verbal tantrum. Before I was able to really get going, my best friend cut a piece of ice cream off and put it, using the knife, to my mouth and I accepted it. I was instantly quieted and at peace." I love the image of that. Thank you for that. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Tenacious Maggie. She is uh, in her 30s, was raised in a stable and safe environment um was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it deepest darkest thoughts i have a lot of body shame that i do not like owning up to that's because i believe that it is trivial and beneath me to spend so much time and energy on that worry by the way it's been my experience and i've noticed that most people that have serious body shame is it's not really about the body it's about something emotional underneath that and maybe that's obvious to everybody else but um that that didn't occur to me until I began to like who I was. And then I noticed that my actual my face and my body looked different in the mirror. And now I'm a big pig who's let himself go. But that has nothing to do with how I feel about myself. <laughs> Deepest, darkest secrets. I still feel guilt about taking items from other travelers when abroad. The items seem to have been left behind, but I had moved slash concealed them by the time the people came back looking for their stuff. They asked me if I had seen their stuff and I said, no, they looked so sad. Um, oh, I forgot to mention that she considers herself asexual. Um, and she writes primarily asexual due to hormonal issues from disordered eating. Big issue for my boyfriend, not me so much. Um, and she was raised in a stable and safe environment, a uh, Midwestern, lower-middle-class Catholic, uh, she says. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, initiating an unexperienced guy, not very young though, perhaps around 30, so that he becomes almost worshipful, then breaking his heart. Pretty mundane, I know. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Sure. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Some wistfulness for when I had perceptible sexual desires. Sending some love your way, Maggie. This is from the uh, Happy Moment survey filled out by Lucy. Uh, once when I was in high school, my dad took me out shopping. We spent the whole day together. He had turned his cell phone off, which was a huge deal. It was just us two. I love that one. I love how simple it is. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Not so Great, N-O-T-Z-O. Um, he is gay. He's in his 20s. Um, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Both my parents are pretty manic-depressive. I had the pleasure of living with my dad, quote, adjust to his meds and go through violent and verbally, emotionally, and pretty often physically abusive outbursts. He's better now, but he really gave me a hard time growing up. I love, by the way, that that's considered a little dysfunctional. Um, Deepest, darkest thoughts. Uh, And he's... has never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I'm actually surprised to find out that I am by far from alone when it comes to having completely obtrusive and disturbing thoughts revolving around hurting other people or even killing them. Thankfully, I no longer have those disturbing thoughts due to me taking Zoloft. Other than that, my thoughts aren't particularly that dark uh, or that great for that matter. Deepest, darkest secrets. Here is the reason I'm filling out this survey. I did something really bad when I was around 12 and my sister was only 5. I don't even know what to label this behavior. I know for a fact I did not rape her and I would be inclined to say it wasn't even molestation. But I remember one night being really curious about kissing and decided to try kissing my sister. The kind of way you would probably kiss another person your own age, not your fucking little sister. I don't know why the fuck I did that. I really don't, honestly. Uh, I really don't. I honestly blocked out pretty much uh, most of it from my head with the hope that I can eventually not ever remember it. Uh, I can only imagine how my sister feels. I know I was a child at that time too, but what the fuck? I was 12 and she was five. The difference is obvious. I remember feeling practically sexually turned on uh, by this at the time but one thing i am clear on is that i never went to the point of touching her genitals or her touching mine yeah i know how noble i cuddled her in a way that was also i don't know the whole thing was fucking weird i have no idea if my sister has any recollection of this um of this even at all either but i'm deeply full of guilt and shame about this i basically made out with my little sister and then cuddled her like she was another girl my age i had no right to do that to her and i feel like a piece of fucking shit that i think honestly has led me to having as much depression and anxiety as i do interestingly enough i'm actually not really into girls at all and identify as gay and am completely turned on by men uh he puts in parentheses, I stare at their asses much like straight dudes would at girls. I knew this when I was 12 too, which is why it's even weirder that I did that to my sister. I have absolutely no interest in pedophilia, uh, and least of all, little girls. Just the opposite. Really strong, dominating, muscular grown men. Uh, Paul, did I sexually abuse my sister? And if not, did I fuck her up mentally? Um, I would not be the person to ask that Um I'm a jackass that tells dick jokes, but as I read this, you know it—it it sounds like that's a really common thing that that kids do with their siblings. Did it fuck her up? I don't know, but I think you should ask her and talk to her, and I think you should talk to a therapist about this. But I do know this: you're being way, way, way too hard on yourself, and beating yourself up is not going to solve anything. It is going to make you less present for the people that are in your life, and um, you need to get to a place of of forgiveness, um, even if your sister doesn't forgive you. But I don't know why she wouldn't. You know that I, I read about this all the time, and yeah, I've you're really hard on yourself, and I just want to send you a send you a hug. So that was the the part of uh, of his survey that I, that I wanted to read, but. You sound like a, um, a really sensitive guy that feels things really deeply and, um, sending you a hug. And I know the listeners listening to this just want to send you a hug too. Um, this is from the happy moment survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Johnny Doppler. Um. And his happy moment is listening to an old Nirvana album for the first time in years uh, in utero and being transported back to my mid-teens when I was the lead singer in a truly awful covers band, standing on stage and singing my heart out to a half-empty pub, thinking I would be the next Kurt Cobain and feeling like the king of the world. A really happy memory. That's awesome. Thank you for that. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a guy, oh, no, a woman uh, who calls herself Alex Calypso. She is uh, straight in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment, uh, never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. My boyfriend is Jewish, and after dating for a few years, I asked him if he'd be open to raising our kids both Jewish and Catholic, which I am. And he said, absolutely not. I would only raise my children Jewish. His abrupt and uncompromising answer made me start to cry immediately. I cried for days and days. I'm not very religious. I'd say a secular Christian of sorts, but the idea of our kids not believing in Santa Claus, as as silly as it feels to type, makes me profoundly sad. I think it's just the pure and beautiful idea of Christmas and all its truly non-religious celebrations that makes me so happy, and as a child, I always dreamed of having my own kids to be Santa for. So after crying for a few days, I decided I loved my boyfriend too much to let a Christmas tree break us up. I told him I'd be willing to raise our children Jewish, which is true. Years have gone by since then, and when the subject of having a Christmas tree in our apartment, where we are currently childless, came up, my boyfriend said, absolutely not once again. Now I'm wondering if I've made a huge mistake, and if I I continue uh, and eventually marry him, I will secretly resent him for taking away my family Christmas. Also, part of me knows I don't want to break up with him because he's my first boyfriend and we've been together for five and a half half years. Plus, I'm afraid I won't slash can't find anyone better. I feel completely undesirable and I hate the way I look. Also, I'm not sexually attracted to my boyfriend physically at all. I think most of it has to do with the fact that he's so turned on by me that makes me love him. I really wish he'd lose about 15 to 20 pounds because he's gained a lot of weight in his gut in the last few years, but I don't have the heart to say anything. He's also uh, has a way lower sex drive than I do, which pisses me off because after all the stereotypes that guys want sex all the time, he's turning me down all the time because he's too tired or too full from eating his weight in sushi to do me. So, of course, that doesn't help my self-image at all. We're in our fucking 20s and after five and a half years, I've maybe had sex 20 to 30 times. And now after living with him for the past month, I've had sex maybe twice. What the fuck? And it's supposed to get worse as we get older and I lose my figure? This blows. My first thought as I read this is go to counseling immediately or break up with this guy. Do not get married to this guy. Do not, because from what you've shared here, you guys both have deep-seated issues that need to be worked on if there's ever going to be any kind of intimacy between the two of you. And the fact that that, that you shared that you're afraid that you can't or won't find somebody else is a terrible position to approach a relationship from, because you give all your power to that other person. And it sounds like this guy is relishing his power. I mean, what a dick to say absolutely not. You know, to not even ask you, you know, to talk about it in a nuanced way. Yeah. So that, that, I could read more of your, uh, of your survey, but that was the important thing that I, I wanted to read from that. Um, And you will be amazed with, with counseling and support groups how much people can change. My wife and I are completely different people than we were when we met 25 years ago. We're both still assholes. But we're completely different assholes. Uh, This is from the babysitter survey, one that doesn't get filled out too often. Um, This is filled out by a female who calls herself blurf. She's straight in her 20s and was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse outside of the events described here, and uh, never reported it. And she writes, uh, During a summer when I was around five, my mom asked a neighbor boy around 15 years old to watch my brothers and I several times. We knew the boy because he was a neighbor and our mothers were PTA buddies. While lying on the couch, he invited me to lie on my back on his chest while watching TV. Uh, He put his hands in my underwear and rubbed my vagina while thrusting uh, while I was on top of him. He did this several times while babysitting, sometimes with my brothers in the room. Uh, I've told boyfriends and my therapist I tell serious boyfriends because sometimes I have moments of breakdown during sex that stem uh, from this and I want them to know it's not their fault. Um Only very recently did I tell my therapist after two years of seeing her regularly, and I think this is because I knew it would lead to having to bring up some very difficult feelings around the event. As soon as I told her, it was like a light bulb went off, and she realized so many connections between the event and my emotional issues. At the time, I thought it was normal. How is a five-year-old supposed to know what is and isn't appropriate? And this was my cool neighbor friend. I felt special. That he was giving me extra attention i have never told my parents and i don't think i ever will i believe this repeated abuse has had an immense effect on my relationships with men and my need for approval from them i also find that i am attracted to men who are very aggressive during sex promiscuity in my life now is also something i think has resulted from the abuse if a man wants to have sex with me it somehow means i'm more worthy uh, I have a lot of resentment towards my mom for leaving me with someone who wasn't trustworthy. Of course, she could have never have known this would happen, but I wish she would have thought more about leaving her young daughter with a teenage boy unsupervised because I've never told her what happened. I sometimes want to throw it in her face when I'm upset at her and tell her that her negligence has made my life very difficult, but I can't imagine what kind of guilt that would bring on her. Part of me also thinks she wouldn't believe me and having to endure the pain that would bring sounds worse than keeping the secret to myself and shame, of course, that I let him do it more than once because I didn't know any better. Well, if you don't know any better, which children don't, you're not letting him do it. Um, and something to pay attention to there is the fact that you're afraid your mom isn't going to believe you. You know, that speaks of an issue with your mom, regardless of this event that um, is, is in my mind, kind of, kind of serious, but God, I hope, I I hope that you can not blame yourself for any, any of this. Do you feel any damage was done? She writes, lots of damage. As I mentioned, I think the abuse has affected my taste in men, and I end up with people who aren't good to me, and I'm honestly not attracted to the nice guys who are, and that's really common, by the way. Sexually, I'm unable to get off unless the guy fingers me, and I feel a lot of shame around masturbation, so I never touch myself in a sexual way. I also think this abuse happening so early in my life set me up on my path to major depression and anxiety issues. that makes perfect sense to me. And um, it's great that you're you're finally sharing this with your therapist. and um, I, I, I hope you find f- find some peace and get to a place um, where you f- you feel like you're um, you can be present in the bedroom and and be attracted to to people that are healthy for you. Um, and uh, finally, this is from that uh, happy moments survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Paul Ford. And he writes, Sometimes I take mental snapshots when being somewhere I know I won't come back to. Uh, One time I was sitting in my apartment in the old Soviet Union. Too much snow had fallen outside and the radiator was working overtime. It was almost too hot inside. Maybe it was the tea I'd just been drinking. But nonetheless, it felt really good being safe and warm on the inside, looking out at this massive white, gray, and dark blue, blackish color that comes around sundown in the winter when the snow was falling heavily. Maybe it was the week that had just passed that I was feeling good about. I can't really remember. I just remember my toes feeling warm and the surroundings on that Sunday. That is a moment I really feel happy about. But there are many like this. Thank you for that, Paul, and thank you guys for continuing to listen and give your support. And uh, welcome to our new listeners. And um, I hope if you heard. I hope you heard something. Um, in this episode that reminds you that you're not alone and that there is
1: hope. And um,
0: thanks for listening.
1: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully, fucked up, I know is weird bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.